coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, it's time for The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a guest-driven program where the topics are diverse and entertaining. Laugh and learn while you listen to one of the best hours of online radio. Now, here's your host, Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this edition of The Bill Alexander Show with yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. This program is being recorded on November 10th, 2022, the day before Veterans Day 2022, which is really appropriate because my guest tonight has actually written a book called Of Courage, the incredible true story of Lieutenant Merrill D. Green and the Green Hornets. On the phone right now, we have Justin R. Burke. Justin, how are you doing this evening? Doing very good. Thank you so much for having me. I am so glad you could do could join me this evening because we've been talking now since sometime in August about having you on the program. But I think tonight's just the perfect night to be able to do it. Now, you wrote this book about your grandfather. What made it difficult is you never met your grandfather. Yeah, uh, yeah. He, so he died uh, uh, in 1976, uh, six years before I was born. And for me, uh, he really kind of existed through family legend and, and the few stories that my mother and my uncles could tell me about him. So the story is not just only about your grandfather. It's also about your grandmother, too. Now, was she still alive when you were born? Or did she pass away also? Uh, she was alive. but She died uh, in 83. So I was I was a year old. Oh, I really wow. didn't know her. But, um, you know, I thought it was pretty special <laughs> for her to at least have those memories with me. And, and you know, I kind of hold those pictures that I have of her pretty dear. So. Since you didn't know your grandfather, didn't really know your grandmother, but you knew he was in World War II, what made you want to write this book about a person you've never met? Well, I I really had been like an aviation fanatic since I was little. I loved going to air shows and loved a lot of military stuff, and I wanted to be a pilot uh, when I was when I was little. And um, obviously, life's taken a, a step. You know, tends to show you where you're going to go, but. Um, but I, I wanted to um, do a little bit more research on the man, and my my mother and my uncles really didn't have all the best experience with their father and my grandfather when he was around. Okay. So I was kind of intrigued by him. And what? Where did you start? I mean, how did you even get the the information if really no one actually had anything other than their day to day life with them? Yeah, sure. And it, and it shows in the book. Uh, I've been fortunate and my mother preserved a ton of their wartime correspondence, a lot of really amazing pictures, and um, obviously was able to, to have a relationship with their, their mom up until when she died in, in 83. Uh, but in addition, uh, randomly in the early 1990s, my dad, uh, for some reason, he was doing a lot of genealogy for our side of the family, but he wanted us to know about my mom's side. Right. Uh, he tracked down the 8th Air Force Historical Society, and we ended up contacting the four of the surviving members of his crew and got amazing interviews that 25 years later I was able to incorporate in the book. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So so your grandfather was a young boy who was a long way from home. Uh, he, was, he was basically, the only flying he really had was with your great-grandfather and a crop duster, correct? Yeah, yeah. So he was the, he was the crazy crop duster that uh, people nowadays that I was able to interview with this still remember him doing 
crazy maneuvers and really dare uh, devilry type of uh, uh, actions out there. So they had some really interesting stories of him. So what made him, did he, was he drafted or did he join the military? Well, so he, he knew his draft. In, so he enlisted in uh, the fall of 42 and he knew in October that he, his draft was, uh, time was going to come up okay and he thought he wanted to get into the air corps before he would be put in like a you know an army position or whatever the government needed at that time so he enlisted in um in september right before and in early 1942 they the army had just dropped its uh requirements for all of his air um officers to have college education oh. he didn't have that at all you know he was a farmer and um Luckily, in January of 42 is when they dropped that. But in February, he came down with appendicitis, and it delayed him until the fall. So what training did he need? I mean, of course, I knew he flew with your great-grandfather, but was that enough training to get him started, or did he have to start from the beginning all over again? Yeah, uh, so a little bit of both. It's funny because the, the skills that he learned piloting over rural Illinois in the, uh, the, the early 40s, late 30s, uh, I think paid off during his wartime experiences. But when he enlisted, um, the Army Air Corps at the time didn't actually prefer to have their pilots have any sort of civilian flying experience because they wanted to train them their way. Okay. So he actually hit his flying experience on his uh, enlistment <laughs> records. And he spent the next uh, almost two years going through uh, four different flight schools. What's interesting is thinking about it now, I can understand his how his crop dusting could work in his favor, basically barnstorming like that in the military skies during World War II. That would, I could see a comparison there. Yeah, for sure. You know, that, that was, that was the age of, especially back in the 1930s where the barnstormers would come in and do that, just like you said. And it was pretty amazing because you'd have these World War I vets that were uh, coming in trying to look for an occupation and putting on these amazing shows. So I think right. from early on, he was really inspired by that. And even, uh, even Jimmy Doolittle, who would later turn out to command the 8th Air Force, uh, did a lot of races around where he was in Springfield, Illinois. And um, I'm sure he was able to see that. So it's kind of ironic. So before your father went in, did he know your grandmother or did they meet afterwards, after he was enlisted? Uh, so, yeah, so they knew. Uh, we don't exactly know exactly how they met, but, um, you know, there's a lot of kind of rumors about that. But she was a... Uh, she was a Catholic from the town, from the city of Springfield, and he was a, uh, a farmer from outside, just outside in the rural area. And I think they had met through her doing some cheerleading and him playing basketball. And that's okay. the rumor that we have. And then they got married very early on in 1942, about a month or two after he was, uh, he passed his kind of basic training. Okay. Um, so, so this whole idea of writing this book about your grandfather was it mainly done for for you and your family, or did you want to share the story with everybody? You know, it, it kind of started out originally as as something that I was going to do, that I was hoping that my boys, uh, my sons, could have up on their bookshelf, you know, in, in decades to come. But it's funny because uh, I was able to track down all of the other nine uh, families that were crew members on my grandfather's plane, and it kind of turned out to this, be this huge information-sharing event where um, – all, it was just absolutely amazing to be able to talk to these people about their relatives and the experiences they went through. And it turned out to be this, this giant project and um, even, even allowed me to go over to Germany and meet some eyewitnesses over there. 
and uh, it, it just blew, kind of blew up from there. And I thought, it, you know, it, it, it seems like a pretty interesting story. I think it, it seems like something Hollywood would almost come up with. So I thought I'd share it. So is there any particular story that you've told in the book that sticks with you? Um, yeah, so he, um, he was, he lost, uh, uh, his best friend was actually the bombardier on his, on his aircraft and he was killed on their, their, their initial mission as a total crew. It was my grandfather's third mission, but he was killed and he, uh, he ended up uh, dying while they were over, still over Germany. Um, and, uh, he, when, when my grandfather finally made it back to the States in, uh, mid 45, he, he, from then on, he suffered with a lot of survivor's guilt and PTSD, uh, you know, obviously kind of suffered with a lot of demons, Right. but, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure I couldn't imagine, but, um, it was pretty amazing that uh, the bombardier, his name is Jack. Um, I found out that the German, the Luftwaffe, the Luftwaffe unit that had captured them when they crash landed, buried Jack's body on the side of a road, kind of just almost threw him in a ditch and covered him with some dirt. Well, the local Germans where they crashed from right next to the village, they didn't like that at all. So they, they, um, got retrieved the body and they buried it amongst their own in their own village cemetery. And he stayed there for about a year and a half. But the, the way, uh, that the Germans lended aid to the crew and took care of the body and, and did all these amazing things just really stands out because you don't hear about that side about Germans, right? you know, kind of helping the Americans. Um, a few years ago, I interviewed someone who also um, wrote a book about his father uh, during World War II, and he was also in Germany, and he was also a pilot, and he made a comment that there was that, that the German people did not really buy into what the Nazis were doing because they were against what Hitler was doing, so they felt it was their responsibility to take care of anybody that would be injured died or anything so they would hide them from the from the, the the Nazi army so they wouldn't actually harm them and this just confirms it even more that these people were looking out for them yeah for sure I mean amazing acts of bravery if you think about it because those are all crimes against the state back right then. those are very severe crimes and um, to be able to have that type of courage which kind of ties into the, the, the title of the book ironically uh, I think uh, is is pretty commendable as as well. So what's really interesting is when you start telling the story, you you, you started off about talking about your uh, your grandparents, and there's some photos that you have shared throughout. Where did you get the photos from? Well, yeah, so it's I I was lucky to have my mom preserve a lot of stuff because my my grandmother um, kept a lot of the correspondence and photos during the war and when she passed she kind of passed that on to her and i feel honored that i it's come into my position now and i can take care of that as well but funny enough because my grandfather had all these problems and and ended up after the war in the 60s kind of pretty much abandoning the family and disappearing um uh we didn't know about his uh brother or sister's family at all we had no idea what happened to him or where they lived well, during this research that I did, I was able to connect with them, and they, they live 10 miles away from where my mother's at in Illinois. Oh, wow. And they dumped all this information. I, I got his pilot wings that I didn't know existed, a bunch of POW letters that he had, and uh, additional um, family memorabilia and photos that are just absolutely priceless. So I, I was so fortunate. There is a photo in the book that um, I saw, and I'm very familiar with 
with the uh, guys that invented it, which were the Wright brothers. And that is really a unique photo that was from what, around 19, 1910, 1918, or somewhere in that ballpark? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, yeah, pretty amazing. They were doing Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Finish. No, I think that that was kind of a really, really neat little uh, um, uh, episode to be able to include in that book. You know, because that's a, it flown near uh, Mount Pulaski on the way from Chicago on down to through Springfield and then into kind of southern Illinois um, doing a, 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 a plane versus train race. And they happened to land where my grandfather's father had grown up um, during that time. And he was there and able to see uh, one of the Wright brothers come on in. So when, when you start getting into the, the whole, the whole um, World War II, the Luftwaffe um, and, and all that happening, and, and it's basically 1939, the, the, the German or the Nazis had one of the best flying corps in the world. Would you know how your grandfather felt because of, of getting involved something that was pretty much new at the time? I mean, they, it was being done, but it wasn't being done as a um, as a type of war, a warcraft to be able to take people down. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the amazing things that I, I still am surprised about. But I could not imagine being a 23-year-old uh, rural farmer pilot who flew in an open seat biplane and enlisted and within two years they're flying in the substratosphere mm -hmm. in such extreme conditions that pretty much was an alien world like you're talking about at that time and not only that they're going up against the world's finest in the Luftwaffe and I, I for all of those, those boys and that's what they were they were pretty much all boys is absolutely amazing and some of the most amazing events and bravery I think in our, our history as Americans so whenever they were flying, and I don't know if you know this or not, but how many how many missions would they do a day? Would it be one, two, or as many that were needed? Yeah, so the Eighth Air Force at that time, they had they my grandfather arrived in England uh, in August of forty four, and by that time they had raised the quota of doing at least thirty five missions before they were allowed to go home. Oh wow! Okay. Um, in earlier in that year, in the spring, it was twenty five. Uh, it was 30, and then it was 25 really early in the spring. Um, but they were getting so much turnover in the 8th Air Force and losing a lot of experienced veterans that they decided to expand that. And obviously, in that during that time, the Luftwaffe was starting to get beaten back. So uh, they wanted to keep their, their men going, and they were putting up the biggest aerial armadas that ever existed at that time. But they would uh, maybe go out on a mission uh, for a day or two and then get a day's break. But sometimes they could do three, four or five in a row, but it wow. would be at most a mission a day. And those are up to mm -hmm. eight, nine, 10, 12 hours. So when, when you, when you put the book together, you were mentioning letters that, that your mother were able, was able to keep um, safe. So they weren't ruined. And also you talked about your dad's sister and brother who had POW letters. Did you use those to reconstruct what he was doing over there? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I knew as I started writing this book, I probably knew, uh, maybe 50% of the timeline of my grandfather's life. And then once I came across these documents, I was probably able to reconstruct about 95% of where the man was every day for, you know, almost 50 years. And it was, it was really amazing to, to be able to fit those pieces in and also at the same time kind of con confirm my, my research as well. So it's 
pretty amazing. So the other guys that were in the um, 8th Air Force that you talked to, how old were they when you were talking to them? So, let's see, they, the, we had the ball turret gunner, which I think was the youngest out of the crew, and when we talked to him in the 90s, he must have been, let's see, seven, 70s at most, Okay. I'd say, right? Because 1921 is when my grandfather was born. And, yeah. and, and how was their memories, the recollections of what they, what they remembered from that long ago? Absolutely amazing, actually. Um, and, and one of the things that I, that shocked my father when he talked to them was how open they were about wanting to ex- express these stories and get them out, you know, and, and I'm sure after three quarters of a decade, that must've been really tough for them to still kind of right. bring back up to and talk about but they provided some amazing, amazing stories, amazing details, and they were just absolutely amazing men to be able to talk to. And I remember that I was uh, a young teenager, maybe not even a teenager yet, when I was when I spoke to the ball turret gunner. He was from Louisiana. I still remember his accent. But I remember thinking, oh, this is really cool to, to talk to somebody that knew my grandfather. And, you know, he was on a B-17 and he was a ball turret gunner. But um, I didn't comprehend the the opportunity that was going on at that moment and i look back on it and i think there's so much more i wish i would have appreciated and talked and asked with that man because it was absolutely amazing so obviously gone now so dealing with being in the 90s when you talk to these men how did you how did you keep the information did you write it down did you record it how did you uh keep track of this stuff yeah, so when, when we did that initial research in the 90s, it was kind of all just a bunch of random scratches that were jotted down uh, really uh, all over the place. The information was just, I don't know, on a bunch of sheets and, and notebooks. And I happened to just keep them for another 20 years until um, 2018 when I started doing my own research. And what my father didn't have in the 90s was a um, what I had in 2018 was just a, so much more advanced internet right. capabilities. Uh, it, and I tell you, being able to contact people in Germany and England and Louisiana across the country, uh, it paid so many dividends in my research. And and, it, and I'd like to think the book is pretty interesting, but I guarantee it wouldn't be as interesting had we just written it in the 90s. That's really interesting to me. So th- these individuals that you spoke to, did you actually get in touch with their families again? Or... Are you just using the original research? Uh, I actually got in touch with them again. Um, uh, I I was none of the, the crew is alive any, anymore. Um, they passed. I think the last one survived in like 2015. I think he passed. So I was talking to a lot of the uh, the sons, daughters, and uh, nephews of the crew, and some of the stories that I had they had never heard about, and I I hadn't heard about a bunch of stories, but. Um, it was like I mentioned before, it was just such a, a great experience to be able to connect with people whose, you know, nine, 10 different families lives crossed three quarters of a decade before and to be able to share those stories and um, and, and talk about such amazing men was was a great experience. One thing I've learned over the years, because I've had um, I've had my one grandfather was in the Marines during World War Two, and he refused mm-hmm. to talk about it. He told me that. He lived it once. He didn't want to do it again. And then I had another one that was stateside during that. And then my father-in-law, who passed away in 2019 at the age of 96, was in the Navy. 
And it was so hard pulling people, the stories out of people, because a lot of these guys that saw action didn't want to remember it. Did you run into that problem sure. with the ones you talked to? Uh, not, not the ones on the crew, but it, there are a lot of different individuals that were, you know, either training captains, uh, that they interacted with in England. Um, a lot of those kind of personnel that, that were very hesitant with it, but it was funny because of the eight, uh, seven and eight other families on my grandfather's crew that I was able to talk to. They, they seemed, um, uh, very, very happy to share that information. Um, even, even before they knew I wanted to put, to put together a book. So, um, yeah, it was, I was pretty fortunate. There's a piece in here. It says, I saw forts and fighters blowing up forts and fighters going down, smoking and burning wings coming off, tails coming off the sky full of parachutes. One guy floated into a low Fort B and was, let's see, uh, my eyesight's getting worse is what the problem is. <laughs> the print is so small, but it was just rolled over in the, in the, in the dive. The sky was all full of uh, tracers, 20 millimeter cannon shells exploding, and even rockets. So this type of, of story that you have, you have throughout the book because individuals were able to give you the recounts of what they remembered. That had to be really amazing. Yeah, yeah. I talked to a man um, named Morton Kimmel who was uh, who flew in the same group with my grandfather at the same time. Lives back in Pennsylvania, and I was able to actually have a discussion, a couple conversations with him back in 2019, I think it was. And the man is just absolutely amazing, spot on the ball, uh, and shared such amazing stories. He was also a bombardier, and I think I remember one of the things we talked about was the Norden bomb site and how revolutionary that was, and it was secret high-tech technology back then, obviously, you know, and there was a lot of uh, effort put into protecting the Norden bomb site. So I asked him about that. Hey, uh, what would you do if you got shot down? What, what did they train you to do as a bombardier? And he said, uh, he just took pause for a second. He told me a couple well-placed bullets in the right spots would take care of that site. And he still wasn't willing to give me a lot of information, uh, you know, 60 years later, on on his technology and it's funny because when that man and other bombardiers like him enlisted and went to bombardier school they took an oath about protecting that technology oh interesting able to yeah so even still 60 70 years later he was still doing that so what when you look when you look at this there's a lot of photos in here you have of your grandparents and of some of the missions now of course i know these aren't the actual missions but where did you get these photos mm -hmm. from yeah, luckily, uh, I use a lot of National Archives and stuff off of Ford, Fold 3, but uh, I was able to kind of actually make a lot of uh, connections with uh, people from the 94th Bomb Group uh, Facebook forum, and they were instrumental in giving me a lot of details to fill in about that. They have some incredible researchers there and historians, a part of that group, and I was able to connect with them, and, and it, I think, really filled, it, uh, filled in a lot of complimentary uh, information like that. And, and I was able to elaborate on some stories that I wouldn't otherwise have been able to, had I not, uh, made contact with those people. So the other thing is here is that the chapter four is among the elite and it's September, 1942, the U S army recruitment center in Peoria, Illinois. <laughs> and, and 
to the best of your knowledge, are you sound and well? Uh, <laughs> prodded the questionnaire yeah. that had been slid in front of Merle on the 7th of September, 1942. I'm thinking, I'm here. Of course I'm well. What, what, what do you want me to answer? But I, I think that's interesting that you were able to, to reconstruct that. Was that a letter he wrote back home? Or how did you get that information? Or did you just imagine what he would have said? Uh, somehow, miraculously, uh, they, his enlistment record that I pulled that that actually off of uh, was was kept in the family. So, uh, yeah, it was passed down and a part of all those records that, that my grandmother had initially started collecting. Um, it's pretty funny. And we've got uh, documents like that. We've got a lot of POW uh, letters that he sent. And then also um, some awards and accolades that he was awarded. He got the Distinguished Flying Cross uh, uh, that was issued to him after uh, on a mission at September 11th. And we have the narrative for that as well. Oh, so wow. It's really interesting, yeah. So there's there's something else in this that says, but perhaps the most absurd, absurdly amusing and downright distressing assessment was, have you ever used cocaine? heroin, morphine, marijuana, or any habit-forming drug or narcotic. Since childhood, wet the bed while asleep, had gonorrhea, sores on penis, convulsions or fits, spells of a consciousness, raised or spat up blood, had any illness, disease, or injury that required treatment in a hospital or asylum. <laughs> okay, that, that's, a, that's an image right there that I can't get out of my head. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, maybe for some people that's just an average Friday night. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, which was funny because they they only allowed one one line for that entire grouping of questions. So it's funny you answer yes. What are you answering yes to? Yeah, exactly right. Um, but but again, that's. I mean, you didn't have testing ability like you do today that you wouldn't be able to give a blood or a urine test to see if they've used right. it. So I guess you had to take it on face value that um, they were being honest whenever they gave that answer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, and a lot of books that I've, I've read about people enlisting and their experience enlisting that people, uh, young boys want to get in there and get in the fight. And you'd be amazed how many were actually underage and lied about their age. I mean, what else did they lie about? But it's just kind of funny that the enthusiasm of youth does that, um, decreases the, uh, the risk, I guess, for them to be wanting to do that. The other thing that I think is amazing is the stuff that your grandmother did save, like the letter from the Western Union from September 18th, 1942, and and keeping this stuff, because I don't think a lot of people would have thought about its significant value, that they would have probably had it for a few years and then was cleaning around the house and said, oh, we don't need this anymore and getting rid of it. But this is an amazing piece of history. I mean, it's just like four or five lines long. But yet it, it gives you an idea of what was going on at that time. Yeah, for sure. Western Union telegrams. I mean, uh, uh, in this case, inviting my grandmother to uh, to Nashville so they could get married. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, think of the Western Union telegrams at that time that were used to inform families of MIA right. and KIA individuals as well. I mean, totally different. You think about nowadays. Um, but yeah, absolutely amazing documents of, of, of American history that are, are just, to me, priceless. I may be a little biased, but I, I just think they're amazing. Well, what I think is interesting, and you made a comment about your boys having a copy of this to put on their shelves. How old are they? 
Yeah, so I have a 14-year-old, an 11-year-old, and he's going to be three in December. Okay. So kind of spread out there. So the two older ones, have they, I mean, they've grown up in an age of technology. They've grown up with the internet and all this. Have they asked you questions about how information was passed? Because this right here, just with what you have from the family, is a time capsule of how people got their information from far away from overseas, that it was not instantaneous. It would take periods of time to do. And do they understand the value of that? I don't think quite yet. You know, just like I I explained being that teenager in the 1990s and talking to this war veteran and not really appreciating fully what's going on. I think that just comes with, with, you know, as they get older, maybe they'll appreciate it a little bit more. But what they really find amazing is is all the pictures and seeing these these, you know, who are my great grandparents right. that are their age. Uh, we even have stuff from the early 1900s that that uh, we they've still kept, you know, original tin types and uh, pretty amazing stuff. So they love looking at that and and looking at my grandfather's uh, flight wings. Uh, he has a a soldier's Bible that he, that was kept in the family and uh, a flight log. So they like those little memorabilia. I think. Um, the other thing is too is just looking at the aircrafts and how they progressed over the uh, over the years and and how they were were very basic and crude back in the 1940s and now they're stealth and they're they're they fly at the speed of light and whatever it may be breaking the sound barrier, yeah. but again it's just amazing and and it wasn't really all that long of a time it was, I mean when you started writing this or getting the information in the 90s it was only about 50 years, so right. That that really just the advancements over a short period of time. Now you made a comment earlier about your grandfather, um, basically abandoning the family in the 1960s, and, and you mentioned the the survivors' um, guilt. Is there any idea why he actually did leave and not try to find help? Um, so from the research that that I've done about that. Um... You know, I'm a firefighter, and, and uh, to be open and honest with you, I, I've struggled with some PTSD and um, uh, traumatic issues uh, for some calls that I've been on over, over you know, 11 years of being in the field. Um, so I kind of sympathize and empathize with my grandfather and, and, and the millions more that were affected by that. But unfortunately, while, you know, we can trace it all the way back to uh, a lack of moral character, characters, what they called right. people back in the Civil War that were having trouble or shell shock or combat fatigue a, a lot of those resources resources for our veterans and and actual diagnosis of ptsd didn't occur until the 1980s you know that wasn't it just didn't exist before then so i feel bad for those veterans that that were unable to get those resources and not only that you got to think of these 20 20 year old boys 30 year old men that were coming back after the war and the, and the cultural stigma that they had to face about mm. having having trouble um, transitioning back into civilian life. Yeah, that that that's just a, a sin on on how we just ignored that because it was supposed to yeah. be buck up, take it like a man, and move on. And yet we know right. that during that period of time, after they got back, the 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 alcohol and drug use was higher because they were ta- doing whatever they could to forget what they were dealing with, because no one, and I hate to use the term, but deprogrammed them from a from a, from a war machine to someone uh, acclimating back into the civilian society. I mean, this was something totally different. And the U.S., I don't think, realized 
what they were dealing with at the time because they never had this many people come back and go back into society as productive individuals. Yeah, exactly. And it's funny when you look at some of the statistics they were saying in the 1950s was like a record high divorce rate for uh, for America. So, I mean, you can obviously see, I mean, what what's what's going on at that time. Look at the men transitioning and it's before Korea is kind of happening. So it's, it's right. a really interesting effect that it has on our society. Yeah, that that is that that really is. And, and you have a, a documented information of what's going on and you can probably see throughout the book and throughout the information you have of what your grandfather was dealing with that too bad someone didn't know about it when he did do what he did to help him get through it. Now, you know, more than you probably ever thought you would know. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I mean, it was, I mean, I think he died when he was 55, 56 years old and like he was, he was a young guy. That's, that's so young. And the stories that we have, while he was just, was given the distinguished flying cross, uh, the purple heart, uh, he was a, a really great pilot from what a lot of people say. Uh, the things that stand out about him, that the stories that were transferred on were, he came back from the war in a shell of the, the young boy that left. Right. Um, and he was on a mission while he wasn't suicidal. He was on a mission to end his life somehow. So he was very reckless when he got back. He, he went back to flying airplanes, even though he had parts of his, uh, most of his fingers amputated on his right hand. Ooh, okay. uh, he went back to flying. He was in multiple uh, aircraft accidents after the war. He raced mini cars. He raced uh, race cars, gotten big accidents there. Um, he was very reckless, uh, speeding his boat around Lake Springfield and got an accident on Spring, uh, Lake Springfield. He had a horrible car accident where he was stuck in the hospital for three or four months. And um, uh, everybody that knew him, knew that there was something going on with him and he eventually kind of just, just disappeared. That, that again, that, that to me, that is just so sad because yeah. like you said, he was trying to take his own life and he was doing it in a way that I don't know if people realized what he was doing or they just didn't know how to help him. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I think even nowadays with all the resources that are available to us, like how easy is it to feel overwhelmed when you're you're faced with a, a friend or a, a family member that's that's dealing with that? That's a that's a huge, uh, huge kind of, um, you know stress for people to, to have to deal with. And then you rewind, uh, you know, 50 years ago and see what they were dealing with. I'm sure they didn't know what to do. You know, they didn't know what to do. So my grandfather turned to alcohol. Uh, he turned to uh, nomadic tendencies and um, reckless behavior. And, and unfortunately, he didn't have a um, any sort of support system that he wanted to use and eventually made his way out to Las Vegas and uh, passed there from pancreatic uh, liver issues. So mm -hmm. he, he kind of drank himself into a bad situation. So you mentioned earlier that you had the opportunity to go to Germany um, to basically go through the sites that your grandfather was at. What was that experience like? Uh, it's, it's surreal. It still is. It's been, I uh, went in, the end of August of this year. And I still think about it almost every day. And I think I cannot believe that I was there 77 years, almost to the day when they, my grandfather suddenly dropped in on a bunch of Germans, you know, when they <laughs> crash landed in right. next to this village. And, um, I was able to, to be greeted by the town mayor. I, I dedicated a plaque to the, the city for all the families on my grandfather's crew because they took care of them. They gave them aid. 
so we dedicated a plaque, had a ceremony there. The Germans invited us into the city hall and we had uh, bratwurst and I can't really say, but we may or may not have had some beer while the, the mayor was on duty. Uh, <laughs> but we, uh, we, we were met with a local historical society and they showed me all the sites. They showed me the crash site. And at the end of the day, they were, they gave me the uh, emergency crash axe that was actually on my grandfather's plane that a young boy had taken from the plane and kept all this time. And oh, they, wow. They awarded it back to me. So imagine how I snuck that through. Uh, oh, I'm through sure. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure get, um, getting that in and out of customs yeah. must have been fun. Uh, right. Yeah. 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 That, that's really, that's interesting. Now, when you, when you went there... Um, was there a language barrier or did they mostly speak English per se that they could understand you enough? Yeah. So, uh, um, at various other locations in Germany where we were, you know, going to Munich and Frankfurt and, and around a couple of other places, the English problem wasn't, wasn't a problem at all. They were, they were great. And I being a very typical American or have very limited, uh, foreign skills, you know, mm-hmm. especially German skills. But uh, where they had crashed is a place called Leiblos, and it's about uh, 30 miles to the east of Frankfurt, kind of a small little village tucked in an absolutely beautiful area. And um, the mayor had was able to speak a little bit of English, and one of the other uh, guys from the historical society could. You could definitely feel there was that, um, that language barrier there, but after spending most of the day with them, it was funny because we were almost having these conversations without even knowing exactly what we were saying, but we could still know what we were <laughs> right. communicating. It was really, really neat. That that does. That sounds fascinating. Um, and I'm sure mm-hmm. you took plenty of pictures, too, to, to, to basically compare and contrast to probably what your grandfather yeah. had just to see how things have changed. Yeah, it was, it was unreal to just uh, do the, do all this research for, you know, almost four years, three and a half years. And even uh, while I'd seen some pictures of these places in Germany, when you actually set foot there, you get this 360 completely immersive uh, experience there. And, and it's funny um, how that kind of sinks in and impacts you and, and really burns. It really burnt a lot on my, my, my mind about what I was seeing. And it was absolutely incredible because it for me, it might it might have been a very small piece of American history, but it was a huge history to me. You know, right? So it was incredible. So when you got to speak to the guys in the '90s about this, was there a camaraderie among all of them because they did serve together in the 1940s? Ah, uh, so yeah, this is one of those questions that I, I I'd been kind of hesitant to answer. I knew it was coming eventually, <laughs> but it's funny because. Uh, so there were 10 people on the crew originally, and they all, uh, apparently they all loved my grandfather for his capabilities and leadership skills. And he was a very personable, down-to-earth guy, you know, uh, salt-of-the-earth type of farmer, young guy. They all really enjoyed being around him. Uh, the co-pilot, however, um, my grand, I guess he, he wanted to really be a fighter pilot. And okay. he was not happy with being number two on a bomber crew to this country bumpkin. So... Um, a lot of the crew didn't like the way that this co-pilot was disciplining and leading the crew. Uh, they didn't have any sort of confidence in his flight skills. Um, but, you know, they're, they got to push these guys off to war, so they didn't really have time to be able to fix that problem. And even after the war, there's a lot of stories that were told by that co-pilot's family that aren't aren't actually as uh, spot on as, as they should be, I think. Okay. So it's just funny. I understand things get interpreted differently, but... 
um, talking to the family, there's a there was a lot of animosity still between him and my grandfather. Oh, interesting. There is a letter here um, where I guess your grandmother played middleman between the pilot and the gunner because of his feelings of shame, embarrassment with the accident. And it, it's a inter- very interesting letter. It says, hello, uh, Gag. It was good to hear from you. And that photo of you, we go for that. I'm counting on it to even keep that collector, collector out. You should see you're uh, your, your propped up on the desk, you and the rest of the crew and the B-17s. I'm sure our little ones will have wings somewhere. Speaking of little ones, and I will, the little green should be here in about about the last of the month. Can you imagine Myrtle dashing around for diapers? Gag, I sure wish you were possible for you to visit us any chance, any time will do. Why don't you um, hop some something and come on up? Myrtle will take you uh, buzzing in some, something. Gag, it would mean so much for him to see you and talk with you. Regards, Rose. So your grandmother was trying to reconnect with some of the guys that he was with. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was still struggling with, with uh, a, a lot of Ill, uh, guilt and transitioning back to civilian life. And uh, she wrote another letter to Gag Gagenheimer is his name, Jim Gagenheimer, amazing guy and an amazing family. And he, she wrote another letter saying that, you know, we keep your picture propped up on the desk, but every time Merle looks at it, he breaks down and cries thinking about his boys, meaning his crew. Uh, but Rose, my, my grandfather pretty much shut down and Rose uh, decided to be proactive about it. And she was the she was the one that lit the fire to try to get these guys back together. And while they didn't do it as a crew until uh, I think the late 80s, that there were four or five of them that were still alive that showed up at an 8th Air Force reunion, Veterans Reunion. Um, my grandfather was able to travel to Pennsylvania down to Louisiana uh, and uh, down throughout the South to reconnect with some of these families on an individual basis. So, okay. So, uh, cause I'm, I'm reading this letter again and again, the, the way it was written the first time, you can see that it's a lot, a lot of uh, stops and starts. And it says, this is my yeah. first attempt of writing with my right hand. It's a little rough, but maybe you can make it out. Thanks for the picture. It is swell. I'll send you one of mine just as soon as they're ready. By the way, I recommended both you and George for the DFC, Distinguished Flying Cross, for what you did then. Uh, We had our collision. I'm still in the Army Air Force, but home for now. And then it goes, Gig, after writing this mural, crumpled it up, threw it away, disgusted, but I think it's wonderful writing for his right hand. I've been carrying it around all this time, thought you might, might like it. I'm pretty proud of this being his first writing. So this was after the fingers were amputated off the hand. Yeah, that was actually done after the war, I think in either uh, late 44, 45, or even maybe a little bit after that. Uh, but yeah, so he, he wrote that original letter and that narrative and he got so embarrassed and disgusted by his, his sloppy writing. And I, and I have this letter and it's very, uh, very faint and it's very hard to read. But he tried, and he tried to express himself on this letter and give it to Jim Gagenheimer, which at that time was a very good friend, um, and uh, ended up being so disgusted with his inability to be uh, to, to write properly that he threw it away. And Rose, always watching him, right. took it out of the trash can and ended up mailing it back to him. So how many and, letters uh, like this are in the book? 
quite a few, quite a few. I, I would, uh, I would say, um, I had access to probably at least 50, 50 letters between crew members and my grandmother and grandfather, um, and, and utilized as much as I could. I, I kind of tried to load that book up with as much important information as possible, but, um, there's quite a bit that I was unable to just fit in the book. You know, I, I don't know if you can tell, but I'm Scottish. I'm pretty long winded. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to bore people too bad you know, and had to confine it to about 350 pages. So the book's been out since September 1st, correct? Yes, correct. So how is it doing? I mean, I know your mother bought a copy, but uh, other than that, <laughs> how's it selling? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I, so I self-published published it. It's on Amazon. It's on Kindle. And I, I'm getting ready to, to find somebody to do an audible uh, read for me. So I want to get that out. Sales are, are pretty, uh, I mean, they're, they're, I, I feel so very fortunate to have the sales that I do. Okay. I don't, I didn't really ever expect to make any money off of it, but. Um, to be honest with you, I'm, I'm very self-critical, so I don't even look at the Amazon sales because I'm afraid to give myself an anxiety attack or something. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, again, this has to be a big feat for you. Did you ever think you were an author, or was this just something you thought you'd try? <laughs> no, and I think by, by reading my, my book, you, you'll definitely tell that I'm not an English major or a professional author. But, you know, I uh, I... I I read this book from Steve Snyder about his father, his experiences as a, as a pilot and uh, in World War II, somewhat similar to my grandfather's, but an amazing story. And uh, after reading that in December of 2018, I thought, hey, you know, my grandfather's got a pretty amazing story, too. I could, I could do something like this. And I originally thought I was going to write an art of, article for a magazine. Uh -huh. But after doing all this research, uh, it just it absolutely exploded into what it is now and I'm very proud of it. I had the opportunity to interview Steve when his book came out. Yeah. And it's, uh, yeah. and if anybody wants to hear that one again, and it is very similar to, to what you're saying. So they collaborate with each other. It's also available on my website, which again was a very interesting story because we never hear about the individual actually that lived through it. What we usually hear is we usually hear this this history dealing with everybody and not just one perspective. And I think we need to see more of the perspective through the individual eyes so we have an understanding of not only what they were dealing with, but what they were feeling as they were dealing with it. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, the story and their actions um, speak for themselves. And I felt like that's kind of how I was with, with my story. I was more just... Uh, planting things into a timeline, into a book, and and just letting them speak. Yeah. Because what they did, what they said, what they saw is is just absolutely amazing. You couldn't you couldn't replicate it with that the emotion and uh, the the bravery or the honor uh, any better than what these guys themselves are saying. Uh, I'm a big fan of Steve Snyder's book. Um, I was able to talk to him quite a few times because I was I was trying to get his uh, his input on on this process of writing the book. And he's got some amazing videos out there. He's all over mm -hmm. social media and like he does such amazing things. I really like the guy. He's he's truly an awesome guy. Yeah, that again, um your book and his book tie in together really nice. It really does, because it, it gives you that perspective wow. of what of what was going on at the time. And both being fighter pilots, again, being able to do that. And some of the videos that he shared which were some of the people he interviewed. 
which were fascinating um, that, that, that he put up there. That's why I was kind of curious whenever you interviewed him in the 90s, if you guys did audio or video recording at the time. Unfortunately, none of that, but I did come across some stuff like uh, Jim Gagenheimer who lived in Gretna, Louisiana, right across the, the river in New Orleans. Uh, the Gretna Historical Society did an interview with him. I think it must have been the late 90s. We okay. didn't know about this, but um, his family sent that to me. And it's really, really an interesting interview to see this guy talk about his life growing up, uh, his war experiences and the problems that he faced afterwards. Um, and it's actually a pretty, pretty emotional uh, interview. And and I think looking back at researching these guys, because I wanted to do them all justice if I was going to talk about them. I just didn't want them to be passing you know, characters or figures in the book. Right. I wanted to do them justice. And I, reading their stories, and I really felt this way about Jim Gagenheimer, is, is that man and what he went through could have been a, a book or movie in and of itself. And he unfortunately, uh, you know, I wish I could have wrote more about him. Mm -hmm. Well, Justin, before I let you go, is there anything you want to tell my audience that we didn't touch on? Uh, yeah, so I was uh, I was hoping that um, uh, if any of your listeners are, are interested, if they need help falling asleep at night or anything like that, or maybe they're interested by what we just talked about, um, if they're interested in writing me at uh, the email at ofgoodcouragebook at gmail.com, uh, I'd be happy to send out an ebook version to you uh if you're interested uh my goal with all this was not to make any money off of this i just want to get these guys stories mm -hmm. out there so if you enjoy it and you change your mind you want to you want to buy a paperback or eventually an audible that would be great but uh, i want to get this man's story out and it's kind of my way of uh you know doing a little honor to my grandfather and those men well the other thing i think is necessary too that and i know a few history teachers that i'm going to share this with that they can oh, share with their classes because I think it's important for for students today to understand what was happening then. I mean, they can they can read what's in the history book, but they don't have an individual perspective of what was going on. And I think this is a very good start for them to be able to understand it. Your book and also Steve. So I think think this is a great companion piece. So I will share that with them over the next few weeks so they can have an idea too. So. Justin, I really so appreciate much. talking to you tonight. This was really great, and I hope everybody else enjoyed it, too. Again, give me that email address one more time. Yeah, sure. It's, it's ofgoodcouragebook at gmail.com. And I will also put that in my description, so if anybody wants to get a copy of the ebook, they can uh, contact you to be able to do it. Justin, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It is a great book. And it was enjoyable to read. And actually, it's a very easy read, too, which is really nice. I hope so. Thank you so much for the kind words. It's been an honor. Thank you very much. You have a great night. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, a big thank you goes out to Justin Burke for joining me this evening as we talked about his new book, Of Good Courage, a book about his grandfather. And again, the name of the book is Of Good Courage, The Incredible True Story of Lieutenant Merle D. Green and the Green Hornets. I will put a link in the description for the email address if you want to get a free e-copy and also the link to the Amazon page if you would like to buy a copy of the book. Guys, thank you very much for joining me this evening, and we'll talk to you next time here on The Bill Alexander Show. Thank you for listening to The Bill Alexander Show. The Bill Alexander Show is a million-dollar baby production. For more information, go to thebillalexandershow.com.